It's Monday, August 2nd, from The Recount and iHeartRadio. This is the News Items Podcast. I'm John Ellis. On Mondays and Wednesdays, my co-host Rebecca Darst and I normally talk about the news, but instead, we have an interview today. My guest is Jane Metcalf, the founding editor of Neo.Life and the former president and co-founder of Wired Magazine. Neo.Life is a news site that, quote, asks the big questions about how we're engineering our own evolution. In other words, it covers the convergence of biology and technology. It's a fascinating world full of mind-blowing advances that can almost sound like science fiction. Jane and I spoke about what she learned from launching, running, and eventually selling Wired Magazine. We talked about the genomics revolution and the tools that could someday interface with the human brain. Jane, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for taking the time to be with us today. Hey, John. It's great to be with you. Thanks for the invitation. Virtually all of these, we start with, how did you get from there to here? (laughs) So you had a publication called Electric World. You were living in the Netherlands. What happened next? Right. So my partner, Louis Rosetto, and I were based in Amsterdam, and we were publishing a magazine called Electric Word. And the magazine was supported by a company that did translation services, but also had software for translators. And so our magazine was supposed to be about the technology for translation, which is a pretty narrow field. And that's a pretty small group of people that are interested in that. And so over the course of the years that we published it, Lewis kept broadening it to include all of the new technologies that were coming down the pike for what we referred to as word workers, you know, desktop publishing and character recognition and speech synthesis, and then all the different technologies for archiving and storing and retrieving words. And Lois went to San Francisco to Macworld and, you know, saw not only what the new technologies coming down the pike were, but also met so many of the computer engineers and software engineers that we'd been thinking about and writing about and got to hang out with them and understand what their ideas and visions for the future were and so forth, and realized that, you know, there's so much more going on than we were able to cover if we're only looking at the technology itself. And, you know, it led to a number of extraordinary conversations and exchanges. We began to tap into this whole world of people who had visions for the future, how technology was going to make the world a better place. You know, engineers who wanted to transform education and engineers who wanted to transform design and engineers who wanted to transform business. And, you know, all of these different applications for these tools were leading us to all start to look at solving problems using the same toolbox. And so it was bringing all these different communities together that wouldn't otherwise have anything in common. Based on that, we started to look at our magazine and think, you know, we could do something so much bigger with this. We could turn this into a lifestyle magazine about how technology is transforming life. And so that's basically how Wired was born. January of 1993 is when we were able to launch the first issue of the magazine. And I remember, you know, it got written up immediately. We were on CNN. We were on, you know, Good Morning America. Hmm. We had this incredible newsstand distribution. I mean, it was just an extraordinary thing that we accomplished with so few resources. It was just an idea whose time had come. 
Did it just hit right away? Was it a slow build from there? What was your experience over the course of the next five years with Wired? I liken it to being strapped to the front of a rocket and blasted into (laughs) outer space. (laughs) So you're sort of the Richard Branson or whatever of... Oh, yeah, exactly. Before the billionaires. Publishing. (laughs) BB, uh, BB time. It was so much work. It was so hard. It was such a struggle on the one hand because we had no money and we were really understaffed and we had so much attention. I remember actually Pat Keneally, who worked for Pat McGovern, said, I think you're going to be successful. The only question is, is it going to take you one year? Because that's going to cost a million dollars. He said, but if it takes two years before this market you're talking about matures, Mm -hmm. that's going to cost you an extra $5 million, you know? So either way, you're going to need more money. Right. And he was right. You know, we were literally with the first issue, we had boxes of it. Nicholas Negroponte was our, one of our seed investors and he took this very personally and he personally sent boxes to creative artist agency to the White House, you know, they were all over Harvard and MIT and Stanford and UC Berkeley. And then we were literally individually delivering boxes of books to places like the Consumer Electronics Show, which at the time had nothing to do with computers. Right, right. Um, Those were two different things. TVs, right? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And, you know, we would go to the Sundance Film Festival. We were at design schools, you know, so it was design, film, you know, education, communications, computer science, and of course, business. It just exploded just immediately. It was just such a rocket ride. Wow. All right. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and we'll be right back with Jane Metcalf. Welcome back to the podcast. The editorial quality of Wired Magazine was superb right from the start. How did you achieve that while you were doing all of this hustling for money and distribution and so on and so forth? We had an extraordinary team. I mean, it was just one of those dream teams. We used to liken it to Atari, you know, where Nolan Bushnell hired people like Steve Jobs and had this extraordinary team. You know, Wired was that. I first have to credit my partner, Louis Rossetto, you know, for his vision and his really clear and extremely demanding vision and work ethic. And then there was John Battelle, who had come out of journalism school. He was the only person on our team who had a journalism degree (laughs) or any professional (laughs) journalism background or experience. And he's gone on to do fabulous things in media, including, of course, The Recount. And then also Kevin Kelly, who I, I, you know, yes, he's a journalist and a writer, but he's really a thinker. Right. And I think it was the combination of the three of them who were so different, you know, coming from different parts of the country, different ages, different interests. And it was the three of them together. It was sort of like, you know, the Holy Trinity or something. And it really just created something bigger than the sum of its parts. And then we had John Plunkett and Barbara Kaur, our creative directors, who were equally engaged, but naive about the computer industry. And so they would ask these really simple questions. I mean, John would say, wait, I don't understand. Are you saying? And then he would tell the same story with, you know, graphics, with images and graphics. And so it just made this incredibly compelling package. What led to the sale of Wired in, I guess, 1998, right? 
Yeah, so the company was broken up and the traditional media assets were sold to Condé Nast, which I liken to sending the magazine to live with its rich uncle in New York. (laughs) 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 And we held on to the internet business for another year or so and then sold that. And we had what Pogo used to call insurmountable opportunities. There was so much happening. It was such an explosive time. We felt like we needed to move as quickly as possible to stake our territory in as many domains as possible. Within five years, we had three editions of the magazine, US, UK, and Japanese edition. We had a book line, our own imprint. We had a television program with MSNBC, and that's just half of the business. The other half of the business was 150 people, including 40 software engineers who were literally pioneering web media. And so we were building the infrastructure and the tools in addition to staking out all the different content areas that we thought were of interest and that were an outgrowth of the Wired editorial mission. And so, you know, we ran around with our hair on fire all day long. (laughs) And we were burning a lot of cash at the time. And each of the businesses that we had launched had their own timeline to profitability. But, you know, it was just a bigger nut than we were able to raise successfully. It was that specific point in time where our business model was too far ahead of the market. Mm -hmm. And it was something that people really hadn't grasped. Our investors said, we see the value of your internet business. And we see the value of the revenue and the stability of your traditional media assets. But combined, they're depressing each other. Right, right. You know, the big idea was sell it off in pieces, which, you know, I think it was like, we had the premier brand in that space at that time. Yes. We had the fastest search engine in the world. We were closing in on 50 million in revenues. I mean, it was just, it was an extraordinary property. And it was like the board of Nike saying, here, I've got this great idea. Why don't we sell footwear to Adidas and we'll sell apparel to Puma and we'll unlock all this value. And it was like, everyone went, oh, that's so smart. And everybody made a lot of money. And Lewis and I and the rest of us were sitting there going, are you kidding me? (laughs) You can't be serious. But you know, what can I say? Everybody made a lot of money. And we were left holding an empty bag at that point. You know, it's like, that was, that was everything. I mean, that was everything we thought about or cared about. And, you know, it was the most interesting story and it was the most interesting life. And, you know, the good news is we had money and two babies. And so we had a really good time for a while, but then I had to go look for a different platform. And, you know, Lewis had always loved chocolate, had always been obsessed with chocolate. And when a friend came and said he wanted to start a chocolate factory, I said, no, that's ridiculous. Are you <laughs> no. And Lewis said, great idea. <laughs> so the next thing I know, we're making chocolate on a pier in San Francisco, which was kind of crazy. How long did that go on? <laughs> I can't even say it with a straight face. The chocolate factory. How long? That, that was another 10 years when all was said and done. I wasn't involved that long, but Lewis was. But I learned a lot, and it got me thinking about nutrition. It got me thinking about molecules. I'd never thought about molecules before. Mm-hmm. My health was not good at the time, and also my family's health. I had three octogenarians suddenly who all sort of had health crises at the same time. Right. And suddenly, I was plunged into this morass, and I started thinking about mental illness. Mm-hmm cognitive decline, especially, you know, dementia and just the epidemic that was going to be sweeping across the world 
and the prognosis was just so bleak and the medication was so ineffective. Mm -hmm. And I started thinking there has to be a better way. So I was thinking a lot about the brain. I was thinking about Pat McGovern. I was thinking about the leading edge and where's the research taking us? What does the future have in store? And how can technology change that? That's how I started doing some reading and going to conferences. And, you know, so I was diving deep into the brain end of things, which is a hard place to start, A. And then B, a dear friend of mine, Ryan Phelan, who had been involved in consumer genomics. So she basically launched the first consumer genetic testing service long before 23andMe. Really? And she said, okay, let's talk about this, but you need to be looking at genomics too. You can't be looking at any of these things in isolation. And it was like so true. And yet the entire field is all about specialization. There's so much knowledge required that you can't possibly track it all. In biology and in medicine, you go deeper and deeper and deeper into your silo, right. essentially. Right. And I didn't have to do that. Right. I didn't have to get a PhD. I just got to go around and like be a journalist and ask people questions and read books and then say, hey, I don't understand. I would go to these conferences and I would say, oh, you know, that's really interesting what you're saying about the genetics of this. Did you know that the neuroscience people are saying this? And maybe there's a connection there. And people with, you know, MDs and PhDs would look at me like, no, I, I didn't know that. <laughs> well, because they're the experts. Right. And what do I know? Right. I, I have zero credentials. You know, <laughs> right. I'm just like a naive person stumbling in going, wow, this stuff is really cool, you know. Right. And ultimately, I just couldn't help myself. I just, I, the media world was in so much tumult and it was just being disrupted every year by yet another technological innovation or platform or whatever. And yet I just couldn't help myself. I was like, these are the most extraordinary people I've ever met. Right. This is the most pivotal moment in history. And I haven't seen anything like this since, oh, wait, since Wired, since 25 <laughs> years ago. Gosh, this feels really similar. And it just was extraordinary. For the second time in my life slash career, I was at the red hot center of something that has the ability to completely transform our world. Only in this case, it's not you know our institutions which is what happened with the digital revolution. It transformed our institutions. It transformed business and education and civic government and all the rest of that, entertainment, communications. This was going to transform us. This was going to go inside. This is going to transform our own brains, our own genomes, our microbiomes. You know, we were talking about engineering proteins and DNA and algae and fungus and viruses. And we were literally going to start tinkering with the building blocks of life. That's interesting. All right, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the podcast. And out of coming to understand the importance of the genomic revolution and proteomics and stuff, you decided to create Neo.life? Exactly. Exactly. That's what I said. I couldn't help myself. It's like, I got to tell this story. You know, I have to do this. And so that's what we did. We just launched on the Medium platform and it's been an extraordinary ride. You know, Medium turned out to not be the right place right. to launch a media business. So eventually we decided we needed our own website. and. You know, it's been really interesting for me now to be the editor this time because I was on the business side last time. Right. So I'm really relishing that role. But 
it's hard because science writers are science communicators, and what they like to communicate is the wonder of science. Right. And that's not what Neolife is about. Neolife is about engineering life. And so it's about what happens when you bring an engineering mindset to biology. And so how is technology enabling us to understand new biological systems and dynamics? It's less about, oh, look at the funny little furry animal and its cute little thing. And look right. what's happening behind the screens. There's some of that. But you know, getting a writer who wants to come in and bring that deep knowledge and understanding of the biology, but also this openness to how we are manipulating that and how what we're discovering about it can then open up new doors. That's a different animal. And it's sort of it's sort of a hybrid, but it's really super interesting. What do you think the three biggest stories are out of the genomic revolution? What would those be? Wow, only three. I could do four. You could do four. Yeah, you can do six if you want. And that's kind of my problem. My dad used to say, you know, can I just pick one thing? And I'm just like, <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs> so obviously the genomic revolution has, you know, this the sequencing of the human genome led to not only our ability to read it, but our ability to write it. Mm -hmm. And now we have the ability to edit it mm -hmm. in the form of CRISPR. Clearly, CRISPR is the biggest story since we launched Neolife. And my timing was impeccable because we were, we were right there when it was uh, yes. used for editing human embryos, which was 2018. Yeah. And you know that has just transformed the world of medicine in extraordinary ways. But it's also transforming the world of food because genetic manipulations that we can do to humans are also happening in plants. And essentially enabling us to skip the amount of time it would take to do traditional breeding right. and just go straight to the end. Right. So the big conversation there is around genetically modified foods and labeling. And if it's the same biological result, only we were able to skip you know, 15 generations of crossbreeding, right. should that be labeled as frankenfood right. or can we just put it out in the world and have a higher yield and longer shelf life and you know higher levels of nutrition and et cetera? So the genomic revolution in medicine, the genomic revolution in food are kind of two forks of the same basic idea. But you know, we are now seeing CRISPR being used in humans for disease right. mitigation. We've had breakthroughs in liver disease and treatments for things like sickle cell anemia. We're looking at basically the ability to eliminate the monogenetic diseases. So anytime there's like one gene that triggers a genetic disease, we should be able to wipe those out within the next 20 years, which is kind of an extraordinary thing and really can't be understated. So that's huge and continuing to grow. You know, since CRISPR, there have been additional specific technical methodologies for editing genes. Mm -hmm. So there's the base pairs and then there's individual bases that can be edited. There's and there's going to continue to be lots of evolution there. And you know, there were existing technologies that use these bacterial pathways like zinc fingers and things like that. So all of those things are are getting more precise and will be used in more and more areas. So I think that's one. You know, there's been huge advances in imaging technology that is enabling us to see inside the brain right. in a field called optogenetics, which allows us to actually manipulate individual neurons. 
you know, you essentially dye these proteins with the fluorescent factor, and then you can use light to activate them. Mm -hmm. And that can turn neurons on and off. And that technology is being used in so many far-reaching applications. It's got potential for neurodegenerative diseases and, and tumors and all sorts of other possibilities. But most intriguingly, it's been shown to be effective in memories in actually restoring lost memories or implanting new memories. I mean, it's kind of an extraordinary thing. And so there's extraordinary work done at UC Berkeley and also at MIT in helping to see what the brain wants to say Mm -hmm. without having to actually say it. And so there's great potential there for connecting with people um, who are locked in after a stroke, for instance, or potentially for people in comas to be able to communicate with us, you know, or to capture what's happening in somebody's dreams. I mean, all of these areas are just sort of extraordinary and mind bending and and exploding. I think it was in 2016, I I had uh, lunch with Juan Enriquez, who's a mutual friend, I think. And he said, I'm thinking about writing a book about brain science. And so I said, you know, why would you do that? And he said, I think that brain science is where the genome was in 1999. Just We're just at the edge of extraordinary discovery and breakthroughs that we can hardly imagine. And, you know, this is it. This is what the Genome Project was in 99, brain science is today. And I wondered if you shared that assessment. I absolutely do. And, you know, I think the frontiers of neuroscience Sadly, they seem to keep getting pushed back, <laughs> you know, they're pushed right. forward, which isn't to say that we aren't learning a lot and don't have, you know, some extraordinary tools for learning more. It's just there's a lot of work to do. I mean, Facebook, I don't know if you saw the headline, they made this big presentation a couple of years ago, Regina Dugan, who had come out of DARPA mm-hmm. and went to Facebook and sort of uh, took charge of the brain computer interface project at Facebook. And of course, they had acquired Oculus. This all was underneath the building eight umbrella of future projects at Facebook. And I saw an announcement um, because they had just published a paper or a paper had just been published that had been funded by Facebook, I should say that. Mm -hmm. And then they announced that they weren't going to fund this anymore, that this was farther off than they thought. And I don't know if that means they've completely abandoned it or what, but, you know, the idea that they were going to be releasing some kind of device, brain computer interface that would allow you to type, you know, a hundred words a minute with just using your brain waves. I think they've said it's going to be more complicated than they thought. But having said that, you know, Brian Johnson at Kernel is getting ready to launch a consumer device that will enable you to do some level of interaction with your computer. You know, I think these things are fascinating and they might be novelties before they're really useful. Mm-hmm. I have a friend, Anna Maikas, who runs a company called Neuroelectrics. And right. you know she's creating these devices that can read brain activity in ways that are therapeutic tools. And she's working in all sorts of clinical trials you know, all around the world and making great strides. In fact, she just got a breakthrough designation from the FDA for her technology. So there's a lot happening in that field. The neuroscience revolution, you know, which is really about sort of being able to read and also being able to to write and stimulate the brain. And, you know, synthetic biology is this other part of it. And I touched on it with the food piece, but, you know, synthetic biology is the manipulation of 
the nucleases of DNA to basically build life from scratch. Mm-hmm. The applications there are extraordinary for opportunities to take industrial waste gases and like methane and carbon dioxide and convert those things into fabrics and food and fuel. And they're also using things like mushrooms, you know, to create leather and other textiles. So that field has extraordinary potential. You know, it's a multi-billion dollar field right now, but it's going to explode. It's just going to keep getting bigger and bigger and has a real potential to help us clean up the planet and transition from, you know, fossil fuels and, and other industrial processes to biological processes, you know, to things that are in conjunction with nature, as opposed to, you know, the extractive economy that we have built so far. You know, those three right there are the big three that we track, but there's a fourth one, which is sort of orthogonal to all of these things, or it vectors through all of these in some way. And that is the anti-aging movement and research. You know, we just did a story on therapeutic plasma exchange. Yes, right. Our writer who's actually a scientist and entrepreneur in his own right, and his wife go to a clinician in San Francisco named Dobri Kiprof and experience this process, which is called apheresis, which is a, a known process. It's been used for years. It's FDA approved, and it's used in autoimmune disorders and mm-hmm. are doing a observational study right now where you basically transfuse your blood. They take out your plasma and they replace it with saline and albumin and basically get rid of the old stuff that's accumulated and pump in fresh fresh saline and albumin in addition to some growth factors right, which right. I, I haven't been able to get detail on yet you know Lou says he feels better after four treatments but his wife who had suffered from sepsis and had inflammation and migraines and energy and mood problems, so she feels completely transformed. And really? Yeah, we literally just published the story a few weeks ago. I had dinner with them on Saturday night, and they said that after four treatments, her blood tests have come back normal for the first time in 10 years. Wow. And she feels great. So she's done. She said, I don't need to do any more treatments. I feel great. Wow. So I've been talking to people like George Church and Aubrey de Grey about this experience and saying, so what do you see happening? And, and you know, what do you think? Is our, Have we found a way to turn the clock back? Have we found, you know, this process? And, you know, both Aubrey and George are very enthusiastic about it. And, you know, George was saying that you will find in another year, we're going to publish about molecules that we can add in along with the saline and the albumin that are really going to make a difference. So it's an incredible time where it just kind of blows your mind that this is where we are. I'm afraid that we've run out of time. We're definitely going to have you back to to sort of do the next Great. chapter. Thank you. I can't thank you enough for doing this. And I urge all of our listeners to go to neo.life, bookmark that, but make sure to subscribe to Jane's newsletter, which comes out on Thursdays and which is spectacular. Thank Jane, you. Jane, thank you so much for doing this. My pleasure. And can I tell listeners there's also a book? So we published a book that basically touches on all the different topics of our beat, if you will, Mm -hmm. with short essays by scientists and science fiction writers and artists 
that basically um, represent 25 visions for the future of our species. So that you can buy on our website. It's called Neolife, 25 Visions for the Future of Our Species. <laughs> you can get it on Amazon. You can get it on our website. And uh, it's an easy and accessible dive into this extraordinary world that we see. Terrific. Thanks again. Thank you so much, John. Talk soon. Thanks for tuning into the News Items podcast. The podcast is based on my newsletter, which is available at newsitems.substack.com. News Items is produced by Christian castro Russell, Pierre Bienname, Ali Rogers, and Megan Burney. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby, and our recording engineer is the great Simran Singh. Tune in tomorrow for my interview with Jean Soroka, the executive director of the Port of Los Angeles. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.